Bola boss, you costard buskers. Welcome to the Blind Buy podcast. Thank you for the magnificent feedback to last week's podcast, which was... It was a long one about Pints of Guinness, about the iconography of Pints of Guinness. I liked doing it, it was good crack, it was very enjoyable. If you're a brand new listener, go back and listen to some previous podcasts. I always suggest that. And if you're a regular listener, you know the crack. What is the crack? This week I have a very special treat. I have a very special treat. And it's something that I've been looking forward to for a long time. Because I'm going to have a chat with someone I have someone I really look up to. A documentary maker by the name of Adam Curtis. I was going to interview Adam before at nearly this time last year. I had a live gig in London which was sold out. Which, which I cancelled. I pulled it because of the coronavirus. It didn't feel safe so I pulled the gig. And Adam was going to be my guest. What can I say about the work of Adam Curtis? He's my favourite documentary filmmaker. Himself and Werner Herzog would be my two favourite. And Adam's documentaries in particular for me would I thoroughly enjoy. A documentary called The Century of the Self. Bitter Lake. Hypernormalization. He makes these... They're hard to pin down and they're hard to describe. He uses a mixture of journalism, music... And archive footage, and most importantly, storytelling, to make these absolutely captivating and interesting documentaries. And it's fair to say as well that he's like the originator of the hot take. Like when I do a hot take on my podcast, what I'm kind of chasing is is that Adam Curtis vibe, where you're watching a documentary and he'll make connections between two things, or he'll find a piece of information. That you're kind of going, wow, I can't believe I didn't know that. And he constructs these, he constructs really interesting arguments and connects unconnected things and uses storytelling. He uses storytelling, by which I mean set up conflict resolution. And he's an entertainment to create these documentaries that will really stick with you. And will really get you thinking about the world. And what are his documentaries about? They're about everything. History, politics, sociology. But ultimately, what he's always trying to do with his documentaries, I think, is trying to describe the feeling of now. And he's been making documentaries since the 80s. But at all times, he's trying to figure out, where are we right now? What What is the zeitgeist and the feeling of now? And... That's always something that's hard to pinpoint, but Adam does a good job of describing it. So you kind of get your head around where the world is at. And as the world gets more and more complex and bizarre, Adam is always there with a documentary to make you go, I don't fully understand things, but I have a, I have a better fucking, I have a better grasp of what's going on right now at least. It's also it's a great honour to have him on the fucking podcast too because Adam doesn't do a lot of interviews. He's a veteran, so he only does the interviews he wants to do. And the reason he's on this one, I got to know Adam over the years. A few podcasts back I spoke about my my dear departed friend David Johnson, 
who was a promoter, a show promoter who I worked with in the UK who passed away recently. And he was friends with Adam Curtis. So Adam used to come to Rubber Bandit's shows in fucking Soho. When I was gigging in Soho, like 2011, 2012, Adam used to come to the shows because he was friends with my friend David Johnson, who was my promoter. And I used to have pints with Adam after the gig. And I didn't, I didn't cop in my head. Because I knew Adam's documentaries. But because he doesn't appear in them, it's just his voice. I didn't know that, like, the Adam who I was having a chat with and having a pint with was the same fella on the documentary. Because why would I make that, why would I make that connection? It'd be too strange. And then, like, a few months later, David Johnson says to me, Oh, yeah, Adam Curtis, he makes these documentaries, you should check him out. And I'm like, holy fuck, that's who I've been having pints with this whole time? Him? So, I got to socialise with Adam a couple of times over in London, and he's an absolute lovely fella, gentleman, incredibly interesting person. And he's also been really supportive of me, because he works in BBC, really supportive of me in BBC when I started making my documentaries, uh, Blind by Undestroys, which you can see on the BBC player. But when I made my first pilot, like, Adam made sure to pass it around within the... Because him within the BBC, he'd be a legend in the BBC, obviously. So he made a point of just passing it around to people and saying, you got to check out this fella Blind Boy in his new documentaries. And that was a huge help to me. So Adam has a brand new documentary coming out called Can't Get You Out of My Head. And it's on the BBC player on February 11th, which is... When the fuck is February 11th? It's this Thursday. Thursday, man. Tomorrow. So, on the BBC iPlayer, his new documentary series, Can't Get You Out of My Head, is airing. And Adam sent me this documentary. He sent me the early edits of it, like a month ago, to get a look at it and to give to give feedback on it. Which I'm like, holy fuck. Adam Curtis is sending me his documentaries to give him fucking feedback. Couldn't believe it. But they're fantastic. They're really, really good. They're, it's a seven-part documentary, I believe. It's it's hard to describe. A lot of Adam's documentaries are hard to describe. They're hard to pin down. The only thing I can say is, like, you have to watch it. It's amazing. Trust me. That's what I always say with Adam's documentaries. It's billed as an emotional history of the modern world. And what Adam always does with his documentaries, like I said, he, he's good at trying to describe the current zeitgeist, to describe the feeling of nowness. He's great at doing that. It covers China, Russia, the rise of artificial intelligence. It's about individualism versus collectivism. It's about conspiracy theories. It's everything. If you like my podcast, you'll definitely like this documentary because there's a lot of parallels. We're interested in a lot of the same things. So you'll really, really enjoy it. Can't Get You Out of My Head, it's called. And it's on the BBC player, February 11th. And it'll probably stay up indefinitely. And check out his other documentaries. Check out anything that Adam Curtis has made. Any Adam Curtis documentary. But in particular, Bitter Lake... Or hyper normalization. They are also they're they're like three hours long. They're fucking incredible. They're both available on the BBC player. I mean, Bitter Lake in particular, it's part documentary, part fucking art, like you'd see in a gallery. 
Like he'll have a seven minute scene of just music and images to create an emotion, you know. He does things that other documentary makers don't do and he also borrows from the language of, of modern art. Parts of Adam Curtis's documentary documentaries feel as if they should be installation pieces in a gallery. It uses that language, you know. So they really are phenomenal and I can't... I can't Watch fucking Adam Curtis's documentaries. Trust me, if you like this podcast, you will adore them. They're fantastic. So I got to I got to have a chat with Adam. And I got to be a little bit nerdy and ask him about his process and how he makes things and how he goes about it. But I hope you enjoy I hope you enjoy the chat. I hope you enjoy it. And I'm really excited for, to show this to you because this is someone I really, really admire. Yart. Here we go. I'm a huge fan of your documentaries. I've been a fan of your documentaries for since about 2010. And your documentaries, they allowed me to... How do I explain this? I, I, I found out who I was as an, as an artist because of watching your documentaries. As in, the way that you... Something I always struggled with was I had this love of information... And I wanted to know, how can I communicate my love of information, but in a way that also feels creative? And your stuff showed me how to do that. How to communicate ideas to people, but to include narrative and to include sights and sounds and <laughs> music. Yeah. And what has always intrigued me about your stuff is, like, do, do you consider your documentaries to be journalism or is it entertainment? And, and like, what are the boundaries there? Well, I, to be honest, as I was growing up in television, I had exactly the same feeling as you did, is that I really loved information. I love stories. I love theories about the world. But I looked around at the work, the stuff that was being done where I was in the BBC and elsewhere, and I just thought it was so boring. I mean, really, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? It just, it, it, it was almost like they didn't really want people to watch or they, or they only wanted a certain type of person to watch who knew the rules and the, 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 the boundaries of that kind of thing. And I just, I'd grown up, like I think a lot of my generation, liking music, liking films and mm -hmm. talked about music, talked about uh, films we liked and, and talked about culture. And I just thought, well, I suppose instinctively, why can't you put the two together? I mean, it, yeah. it, it, it doesn't. It's not entertainment in in a sort of inverted commas. A lot of that that posh generation of journalists would you would use entertainment in a scathing way, disparaging. Yeah, totally. And I just think that's that's just sort of wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that that you that there is there is you do not dilute the information through making it really intriguing and emotionally involving. You just do exactly. not. And in many ways, you make it more approachable, less threatening, less patronizing. And in a way, you also open up to people who would normally never listen to those sort mm -hmm. of posh programs at all. And I'm not being I class it democratizing, democratizing yeah. information. Yes, it is democratizing information. I mean, it's just really... It's it, and and since I was working at the BBC, I also thought that's the sort of thing the BBC should be doing. Um, mm -hmm. And and also the other thing is, I really enjoyed doing it because I could find a way of putting the songs I liked in, bits of music yeah. I liked in. I could be silly, which I like mm -hmm. being, uh, uh, because I noticed that no journalism was silly, mm -hmm. and and I just had fun. 
I mean, it, it was also sometimes agonizing and, and difficult, but it was, I don't know, it just felt right. And, 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 you're, and I just think, I had this theory that a lot of people I knew, because I grew up in the suburbs uh, in mm-hmm. Kent, and I knew that a lot of people who were probably the first generation in their families to either go to uh, a college, a polytechnic mm-hmm. or a university, were really clever really clever. There was a sort of wave of cleverness and confidence beginning to come out of the suburbs, probably in the wake of educational reforms or something. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure why. But they were unser- They were intimidated by that sort of, how do you describe it? A sort of a metropolitan sniffiness, if you might put it mm-hmm. that way, that, 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 you could, that they were clever but intimidated by, by trying to, when they wanted to show their cleverness. And I just wanted to make films... For me, really, I was like that. Mm-hmm. Just, just. Do you feel fun. sometimes that journalists will make shit for other journalists, or like it's it's a problem I see with with academia? Like I was complaining about. Sometimes I listen to a podcast, and the podcast could be about history, and I'm really, really excited. I'm, I'm finding this recently actually because it seems to be more of an English thing. I, I wanna I wanna learn loads about the Anglo Saxons because I'm only recently getting interested in the Anglo Saxons. And when I go to podcasts to learn about it, the title of the podcast seems really interesting. And then it's four academics speaking to each other and they seem to just want to impress each other rather than communicate their knowledge to the uninitiated listener. And then I I don't give a fuck about it because I I don't want to hear four (laughs) academics talking in in a language only they understand, you know. Uh, you'll find as a journalist, you, uh, I have a lot of problems with academics. I mean, there, there are academics I know who are really great and wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, I have a theory that uh, that I think it's more of a problem than, than just that. It's that a lot of the people who are in the professions that used to have a status and an importance because they told us what was what in the world mm-hmm. don't really know what's going on any longer. Um, yeah. and, and, and I think that started somewhere in the 1980s when they discovered, because they tend to be liberals, that the politics of the time and power of the time was moving away from them. And they retreated into, a, I can only put it in a sniffiness, a sort of a distance and a, a slight chilliness in, mm-hmm. in the way they deal with material. And I, I think it's a smokescreen to disguise the fact that they don't really know what's going on. I mean, none of, to be honest, none of us really know what's going on. Yeah. But good journalism tries to get out there. It makes it clear that it doesn't fully know what's going on, but it makes a really good attempt to try and do it because it's got the time and the, and the money to, to do that. Rather than retreating into a language, and, and it's more than that, it's, it's a sort of slight distance and a chilliness from the subject, which puts you off, I feel. Because for, for me... Um... One of the good things I find about your work is if I'm if I if I'm t- if I'm meeting somebody if I'm having a pint and I'm telling somebody to watch an Adam Curtis documentary, what I find really good is I find it difficult to explain in a good way. I, I, it, <laughs> what I always say is you just have to watch it. I can't te- I can't tell you why it is the way. It's it's not just a documentary. You just have to watch it, and then they do watch it and they get back to me and they say. Oh, I know what you mean. I understand now. And with your documentaries too, what you just described there about... I mean, nobody knows what's going on. It's its always... Sometimes it's easy to pinpoint a zeitgeist 10 years on. It's, it's, it's now... When I look back at 
2000, we'll say, and 9-11, yeah. I can comfortably get a flavour and a sound and a sense for that period and I can fit it comfortably into this narrative because I have distance. But when I try and do that right now, that gets really, really confusing. And in that confusion is an anxiety. And your films, because you deal with the... You, you always deal with what with right now, the feeling and emotion of right now. And when I come away from your documentaries, I get a feeling of... I have a language to at least... I'm in the territory of understanding what, what's happening right now, and that now alleviates my existential anxiety a little bit. Thank you. Um, I think what I try and do is two things. I try and do journalism that attempts to explain as best I can what has led to now, whether it be the terrorism or, or mm -hmm. economics. But but I think you probably instinctively, I mean, I, I don't fully understand I don't think it completely through, but I think you're right. Because I am trying to use music and film in an imaginative way as well to create a mood, I also try and, in a way, portray the mood of now. Because uh, I, I think mm -hmm. that's a very interesting kind of modern journalism. If you live in an age like we do at the moment, in which people's feelings are very much at the forefront of every, everything in life. I mean, it's the age of individualism. What we feel is, is seen as very important, uh, mm -hmm. both in consumerism, but also in politics as well. Then in a way, explaining, portraying how people are feeling is as important in journalism as portraying, uh, as, as describing the facts. And if you can somehow put the two together, which I think is what I try and do, then I think that's a sort of modern kind of journalism which touches on the way people are feeling at that moment, which I think is really good. I mean, I think in the past, in other societies, there was a different kind of journalism, which was much more what they would call patrician. They would tell you what's what. But mm -hmm. that was at an age when people expected to be told what's what. Now, in the age of individualism, people expect to think things out for themselves. And I think you have to respect that. And and I try and respect that, but try and create a mood that allows people to think things out. I don't know. I can't mm -hmm. expect any more than that. Um, I'd like to know about your process because your process really intrigues me. Um, like, you, you, you use B-rolls of... I don't know if B-roll the right word. The way that you find footage, you find news footage that a cameraman would have shot but I know that it meant you going through hours and hours and hours of footage to find the right little poignant moment I mean what what, what is your process look like from so the, the most recent series that's coming out this week can't get you out of my head which I, I've seen all seven episodes of and it's fantastic I absolutely loved it Thank but you. it's huge it's massive it's really really big and you have a number of different themes in there and how how do you begin that process what's your first thing that you do when you get like a do you get a central thesis idea or is is your process process based you don't know you're kind of searching and in that it's, searching the narrative comes about it's a it's a process i start with a number of things i start with stories i like because you know i'm a journalist i and i like mm -hmm. stories and i find stories about people's lives and people's experiences, really interesting. And I start with that, and I research those, and what I would then tend to probably do is go and research footage which sort of relates to them. 
Um, but I, but, mm-hmm. but instead of going, oh, I must have that, I must have that, and then bish, that's done, I just let my eye and mind wander through the archive. I just, I, I mean, you, the, the great thing in the... What dish- is that process like? Like, are you sitting in a, in a BBC office and, like, how, how many people are on your team? To, to make when I'm that's doing one that, thing I often me. wonder with that's me is it just you yeah. and do, do you do you edit yeah. the thing yourself on yeah. like I edit it myself I've never understood why people don't edit it themselves it's like being a journalist and letting someone else write the stuff you've researched well, you're often not fucking allowed I'd love to be able to edit it myself I'm simply not allowed I oh, know it's quite odd I mean you're you're so you're so lucky in that respect to to because I'd be the exact same if I'm what like my preferred medium at the moment is podcasting, and the reason I prefer podcasting is I I'm I'm the artist. I have full control over how I edit it and how I'd like it to be. And one of the critiques I have of working in television, which I've been working for ten years, I have a, an idea at the start, and then I bring this idea to a commissioner, and then several other people get involved, and then by the time the end piece is there. I'm simply left with a, a diluted version of my own idea and something I'm not fully happy with. And I'd never understand why TV wants me to do that. And I'm so kind of... I'm envious of your process because you get to... You get to tell everyone to fuck off and just say, this is what I'm doing and deal with it when it's finished. The key thing is, never be a presenter. Ever. Be the producer. I'm a producer. You don't, but you consider yourself a presenter because you, your voice no, is on it. I know, my voice is on it, but I'm not the presenter. I'm the producer. And if you're a producer working oh. on in television, you are the person who, I mean, of course, you have to respect the hierarchy of power. You have to do, mm-hmm. follow all the legal and compliance rules. But but you are seen in a different way. It, it, it's And that's what I am. And that has given me much more freedom than, say, if, if I was a, if you're a presenter, you are given producers who are there to... You know, yeah, help you do it, which leads to a lot of different voices. I mean, I get other people coming in at a later stage to help me. I have an extremely good executive producer. I have a wonderful producer do, called Sandra. Do you have researchers? No. Wow. I, well, because really, I mean, the deal I've done with the BBC is that these things don't cost very much money. Yeah. In return and for it's that, perfect pandemic television. I get a lot of time to research proper okay. time and that is just and and to look at footage and that that's the deal and uh, that's the way it goes um in answer to your question about how i do it is the great thing about f- footage now is it's a lot of it is digitized and it's on okay. what's called quick time files and a quick time file you can scroll through so fast and most of it a lot of it is not very you know it's just rubbish or is boring mm-hmm. but every now and then you'll see something and i will go oh i like that just i like it not necessarily for any factual straight narrative way i just like the mood that shot or series of shots have Mm -hmm. and i will note it down and i I have a good memory and i have a sort of visual memory and i remember it and then i will be a year later i'll be editing some section of the film i'll be desperate i'll be desperate for for a shot because often when you're dealing with subjects like computers and finance there's very little to illustrate them with i will remember that shot because it's got the mood it sort of resonates with the mood that i'm trying to create at this at that point in the edit so i will just go and find it and put it in and so oftentimes it doesn't work but sometimes it does it's it it goes back to what you were saying at the beginning i'm also trying to create a mood in the films as mm-hmm. as well as tell you a story and narrate a series of facts because i think that is also integral to journalism um can you tell us so can't get you out of my head what, what to you is the central thesis of this new film? 
or this new series? I think really what I'm trying to do in the whole series is trying to explain to people why there is this strange disconnect in our time between the fact that increasingly more and more people want change. They want Mm -hmm. things to change. They feel that the world they are living in, not just in America and Britain, but also in Russia, and I think in China too, there is a sense that, that a lot of the regimes in power have run out of ideas and that they are more and more manically just trying to hold things stable. Um, mm-hmm. And in the face of that, and in the face of growing inequalities and growing corruption, there is a desire for change. Yet at the same time, what is not emerging from the groups that you would expect to come up with new ideas are new ideas of different ways mm-hmm. of running, managing, and making a better society. I mean, you, I, I just got intrigued by this. Starting a few years ago, you get... Endlessly, you get groups coming up like the Occupy movement. You also get mm-hmm. Donald Trump coming up. You know, he's mm-hmm. he promised to get rid of the corruption in Washington, and and the sort of things that actually many of the left would agree with. Yeah, uh, that was the strange thing for me when Trump came about, when that movement came about. I remember, I remember hmm. so much of what the right, or, or I won't say that so much of what Trump people were looking for to me sounded like the type of shit that Michael Moore and his ilk were looking for yes. 10 years previously. Yes, exactly. It was, It was. I mean, it was almost word for word that Trump was saying, why are, why are we fighting these horror, horrific wars abroad, which mm-hmm. are not making America safer and also killing hundreds of thousands of people? Why have we closed down all our factories um, and creating communities where everyone has become addicted to opioids. Why is the infrastructure of, of the country falling apart? And why are the banks in Washington corrupt? And you think, yeah, okay, I agree with all mm-hmm. that. And then, of course, Trump gets into power. And if you look at the last four years, despite the, what's the word, the chaos and the fury, actually nothing's changed. The inequalities, the corruption, and the infrastructure of America have carried on completely untouched. I don't know if you noticed mm-hmm. that. It, we didn't because we got obsessed by all sorts of other things, like whether he was a tool of Vladimir Putin. But actually mm-hmm. nothing changed. So what, what intrigued me was why, why was, this, why was there this block against imagining other kinds of futures when there is this increasing desire for change? And I decided just to try and do it in a way that I've done which is slightly differently from what I've done before. In the past, I've tended to follow one idea or one set of ideas and have that played out in the world. In this one, I wanted to show how there have been lots of tributaries, lots of streams over the past 70 or so years that have that initially seem to have absolutely nothing to do with each other, but have all flown in, flowed down and created this sort of sea of now that we're swimming in and are slightly lost in where the roots of that uncertainty and anxiety and fear of the future came from. Um, And in that sense, I was just trying to do a history of the roots of present-day desire for change, yet also fear and uncertainty about how to change. And a feeling that somehow everything is inevitable and you can't change it. There was this strange mix of our time, and I just wanted to explain the roots of that historically by telling a number of different stories. One thing, I, I, w- w- like the, the continual battle between collectivism and individualism throughout the film is something I found really interesting. And, and also as well, this, like in, in your previous films, in like hypernormalization in uh, Bitter Lake, 
you didn't put as much of a lens on China as you have now, but in Can't Get You Out of My Head, China plays a quite a huge role. Why is that? And, and why didn't, like, in, in Bit- Bitter Lake, we'll say, when you spoke about Russia, in particular the, the likes of uh, Vladimir Sarkov, the advisor to, to Putin, why now in this film do you speak more about China and less about Russia? Do you think Russia is, is not as influential as it was five years ago? Are they, is, is Russia blown out of proportion? Well, I think you said it yourself. It, it, no, Russia is important. Um, I did China because China is a rising power. Uh, but also, having researched it, uh, and I've been to China quite a lot, and I know some quite a few Chinese people who are, are, are who have family high up in Beijing. It's mm-hmm. not as confident as it seems, and there is a lot of dissatisfaction, and there is a massive amount of corruption under the surface. And but but even more fundamentally than that, I just noticed that no one in television had done a history of our relationship to China over at the last all. 70 years at all and it's incredibly important that they that you know to go back to the point about what trump was complaining about yeah all the factories were shipped off to china and to other places mm-hmm. um and and they china then began to ship vast amounts of cheap goods to america the banks which were the rising power in america as the industry declined lent people the money through debt to buy those goods and this sort of strange system began to emerge which crashed in 2008, although it stumbles along still. And I just wanted to tell the roots of that. And uh, I just thought, you know, if China is so powerful, is so important, and there is this growing fear of it. You know, it's interesting you mentioned Russia. Mm -hmm. Five or six years ago, the the big villain was was Putin. Uh, Mm -hmm. Have you noticed he's sort of receded, and it's now Xi Jinping is the frightening villain of our time. Putin did very well during the Trump era because he was seen as this dark villain, uh, yeah. who'd given you Donald Trump. But then... Like, I always remind myself that Russia has an economy the same size as Italy. Yes, <laughs> quite. And also remember that Russia's politics are far more chaotic than we think in the West. The idea mm-hmm. that somehow Putin sits in the middle and controls everything is just not true. I mean, he's it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a corrupt, out-of-control kleptocracy in many ways. Um, mm-hmm. But I want to, whereas Xi Jinping is now the central villain of our time in the West, and I think that's going to grow. And in the face of that, I just wanted to tell the history of, of our relationship to China. Not, I'm not the history of China, although obviously I'm telling parts mm-hmm. of that. I wanted to show our relationship to it and also make... When you say our, do you mean the West or do you mean, I mean Britain? The, I mean the West. Because one thing, one thing I often wonder about with Britain in particular is... And it's it's one thing I, I I love about your documentaries. You speak about the uncomfortable truths of the British Empire. Like when you speak about China in Can't Get You Out of My Head, you make a point of saying that Britain flooded China with opium in the 18th century as a means of control. Similarly, in Bitter Lake, you mentioned the Sykes-Picot Agreement in the Middle East where Britain and France totally fucked over the Middle East. Do you think... How does... Britain's imperial past, does that prevent this type of discourse happening? Even Hong Kong, shit like that, you know? I don't think we've fully quite remembered what we did. Uh, and I'm not trying to do the tradition. Oh, I know that. I'm an Irish person. I'm exactly. Aware of that. But, I, was, but, what I, but I, I think one could easily get lost in a sort of 
circular feedback of guilt in that. Mm-hmm. I think there's something in a way more interesting is that we have forgotten the legacy of of structures of power we left behind um, mm-hmm. and, and, and how that has come back to haunt us in all sorts of strange ways. I mean, in the fifth film in the series that you were talking about, I try and tell the history of what happened after we flooded China with opium. I think it started mm-hmm. in the 1840s, 1841. Mm-hmm. Um, we were one of the big forces that wrecked that Chinese empire. I mean, there were other forces pulling it apart at the time. It was a declining empire. But mm-hmm. with that opium tore it apart. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about that is that not only did that make the Chinese very angry with the British, it mm-hmm. also caused, first of all, guilt amongst the mm-hmm. liberal middle classes in the late 19th century in, in Britain, it, that then mutated and morphed into fear. And you got this yes. thing which was called the yellow peril uh, yes. at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, when this wave of fear, it happened in America as well, that yeah. the Chinese were setting up opium dens in all the cities, especially in the east end of London, where they were planning and plotting to cr- d- destroy the, the people of Britain. Um, it, it reminds one very much of the fear of Al-Qaeda in the um, yeah. early parts of this century. It was an absolute wave of fear. And that, I, the roots of that, I think, have gone very deep into the uncertainty of, of, the, of our time. There's, what, I, what I'm really trying to say is that, is that empires, bring with, empires bring with them ghosts and memories which have much, have much bigger dimensions than just simple guilt. Please go on. But these ghosts and me- what I find interesting is that these, the ghosts and memories, it's, it's as if the guilt in the British consciousness of having done this to China, rather than accept and acknowledge the guilt, it sublimates itself into now a fear of the colonized people doing to the British what was done to yeah. them. Yes. Like um, I, I touched on it in a podcast a few weeks back because I was looking, I did a podcast on Guinness and Ireland. Oh, yeah. And the history of Guinness in Ireland as, as part of our culture. And what I found really interesting is Guinness was founded in the 1790s in Ireland. And in Ireland at that time, we had a thing called the Penal Laws, which were a 200-year set of laws that meant that Irish Catholics couldn't own land, couldn't hold public office, couldn't get an education. The complete disenfranchisement of the native Irish population. But at the same time, the Guinness family who were selling alcohol to the Irish people, were these quite imperialistic, would have identified as British and would have been quite unionists. Mm -hmm. And it reminded me so much of what you were saying about China. And then from that, we ended up with a a stereotype of the Irish as being drunk and violent. And it reminded me of, like you were saying, the yellow peril or the, the Fu Manchu. Yes, it's a sort of... I think what I'm gently trying to suggest in these films is that the legacy of an empire is a little more complicated than possibly the left imagines. They they mm-hmm. they often just go, oh, it's just we were horrible and racist. Well, that's true, we were, but there was a much more subtle effect on mm-hmm. us. And uh, one of the characters I look at, uh, uh, whose story I tell a lot in the series, is a guy called Michael de Freitas, who then became a, a, a revolutionary called Michael X. Um, mm-hmm. He came here from Trinidad in Mm -hmm. the 50s, became a gangster, worked for a slum landlord called Peter Rackman. Mm -hmm. But he saw something in the the English which was more than just racism. He 
he called it Englishism. He said it was racist and it said it was vicious, but he said that there was also a melancholy, a sadness underneath it all, at what they'd lost and a fear. And and I think, I think that's a very interesting area to look at. Uh, and I think it sort of suffuses our... I noticed, do you remember after Brexit happened, a lot of the mm-hmm. people who were comp- really shocked by Brexit, who hated mm-hmm. the idea of Brexit, they were shocked not only because the, the working classes had turned around and bitten them in the bum, but 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 they also thought, how can how can our country have come to this? It's awful. Mm-hmm. It's almost like their dignity had been offended. That that they still had a sense of entitlement, is what I'm mm-hmm. trying to say, which was far grander than possibly they deserved as the country they are part of. It, 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 it's gone very deep, but in subtler ways than possibly the left has really imagined and and if you do want to change society in this country you're going to have to deal with that sadness and that melancholy and that fear as much as you are going to have to deal with the 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 overt racism i'm going to take a little break right now so we can have our ocarina pause i'm going to play my ocarina the clay whistle so that an advert is going to be played a digitally inserted advert advert which I don't know what it's going to be. It depends on what your your algorithmic choices. So an advert's going to play, and it might be loud and frightening. So I'm going to give you a little warning by playing this ancient clay whistle, you cunts. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. That was the ocarina pause and that was an advert for something. This is an independent podcast which is funded by you, the listener, via the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast. It's independent in that I don't have a, a sponsor for the podcast. A lot of podcasts of my size, we'll say, because I just I hit 25 million listens recently. So usually podcasts of the size of this will have a brand sponsor in it which I don't want because then that brand has a say in the content of the podcast and sure as soon as I start fucking doing that then it's not the blind by podcast anymore you know so I'll have the odd advertiser on here but they kind of have to play by my rules they don't tell me what to talk about and if they try and tell me what to talk about they can they can fuck off they can go they can go and fuck off 
So I've got full editorial control. Speak about whatever I want. I get to speak about what I'm passionate about. I get to create the podcast hug. And this is all possible. Because of the because of patrons. That's why it's possible. Alright? Um it's my full time job. I adore doing it. This is my this is my main source of income. So if you're consuming this podcast and you're enjoying it and you're listening to it regularly and you like it, all I'm asking is consider paying me for the work that I'm doing. That's it. Pay me for the work that I'm doing. If you met me in real life, if you listen to this podcast and you met me in real life, would you buy me a pint or a cup of coffee if there was no pandemic and we were in a coffee shop or a pub? Well, that's what I'm asking for. Once a month, price of a pint or a cup of coffee. That's it. Patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast if you can't afford that if you've lost your job you know and you don't have the price of a pint once a month that's fine chill out you're grand you can listen for free listen for free if you can afford this you're paying for the person who can't afford it so i'm earning earning a living from the work that i'm doing everybody's getting a podcast it's a model that's based on kindness and it works perfectly. I wouldn't change it for a fucking second. I love it to bits. So patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast. Please become a patron. And thank you to my pre-existing patrons. It it has changed my fucking life. Follow me on Twitch. Twitch.tv forward slash the blind by podcast. I'm on it once a week. Thursday nights 8.30. You can come and chat to me live. I'm making an, an ongoing live video game musical. Which, it's hard to explain, you just have to come along and see it. Like the podcast, share it, you know the crack. Let's go back to the chat with Adam Curtis. Now, in this bit, we speak about conspiracy theories. Do you see a parallel then as well between, we'll say, the yellow peril that was present in early 20th century Britain and America, and now what we have today, which is QAnon? Because the documentary deals with a modern-day conspiracy theory too, that, like... Trump supporters now in 2021, they, they seem to genuinely believe that the people in Washington are, are a race of, of uh, lizard-like paedophiles. <laughs> well, I haven't... And how come you didn't touch on David Icke or David Icke? Well, he, he, he's the original lizard man. The, the truth about um, yeah, QAnon, I have a much more banal view of QAnon. Mm-hmm. The, the, the truth about the last four years is that despite all the agony about Donald Trump in America, he didn't actually do anything. It was, no. he just, I mean, he did things in foreign policy. He, he, mm-hmm. he, he screwed up the Iran deal and he did some very strange things with Saudi Arabia and Israel. Yeah. But it, domestically, apart from lowering taxes for rich people, which I think Republicans just tend to do as a knee jerk thing, mm-hmm. um, he didn't actually do much else. He didn't repair the infrastructure of America. He didn't get rid of the corruption in America. Uh, and he didn't build a wall, as far as I know. Um, in the face of that, everyone retreated into sort of conspiracy theories. Yes. And his supporters... Because they will say the reason he couldn't do it is because, because Trump was being kept back by the deep exactly. state. And I think QAnon was basically there, or, or the reason for its rise in, in influence was there because it, 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 it sort of allowed an excuse for why... He, he wasn't doing anything. It was the paedophiles, a cabal of paedophiles in Washington yeah. that were preventing him building a wall yeah. or making things better or bringing the factories home from China. That was it. So it was a sort of, it was an excuse. I don't see QAnon as this great big dark threat that a lot of um, people on the, the left do. It, it, it was an excuse. To be honest, I mean, if I was going to be brutal, 
just as much as their opponents on the liberal and the left looked to the conspiracy theory about Vladimir Putin as a way of avoiding facing up to the fact that they didn't have any other options to offer in the face mm-hmm. of, of Trump. So everyone retreated into conspiracy theories in, 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 in the last four years. Everyone went down the rabbit hole. And they're still there as far as I can see. Here's a question, and it's, it's, it's something that I struggle with, and I'd like to know your, your opinion on it. So I, I consider myself a person who's a critical thinker. I consider myself someone who's able to look at evidence and not be swayed by conspiracy theory. But, and this is a central tenet to the new documentary, like, sometimes I see a conspiracy theory and I, then I go, Jesus, that's nuts, I'd never believe that. And then I look at actual recorded history of conspiracy theories, such as you touched on, on MK Ultra, which was the CIA mind control program. Like, how do you, how do you, how do you balance those two things? Um, well, how do you spot? When is when does a conspiracy theory become utterly ridiculous? And when is it like this? Is what I'm getting at too. One of the most poignant moments I feel from Bitter Lake, which you made in 2014, 2015, what always stuck with me was when you spoke about Putin's advisor, Vladimir Sarkov, and how Vladimir Sarkov had taken ideas from the world of avant-garde art and put these into Russian politics. In particular, what Russia did was for the government to fund both right-wing groups and left-wing groups at the same time purely to create a sense of chaos so people just gave up and I think that was really prophetic and it makes me wonder now like just last month the leader of the Proud Boys was shown to be an FBI informant and like I know from looking at the history of the CIA the FBI they will insert themselves in any group whether it's right wing or left wing they will simply insert themselves in there just so they can see what's going on and what I'm trying to ask is, my, my hunch, my feeling at the moment, right, this is just my hunch, I think that in America, the right-wing groups like the Proud Boys or the groups like Antifa, I reckon they're both infiltrated by CIA, FBI, and it's being controlled. And I don't know, is that too mad or is that believable? And I can't uh, measure in myself, when have I gone too far? That's the problem I have. When have I gone too far with a conspiracy theory and now I'm two sentences away from thinking that Bill Clinton is a lizard? <laughs> well, I mean, you've put your finger on the problem of our time. Is what, Where is the, the, the thing that allows you to judge whether what you're describing is a conspiracy or a conspiracy theory? And remember, they are two completely different things. There are, yeah. there are conspiracies, you know, yeah, and there there have been recent ones. You could argue that that possibly uh, suggesting that there were weapons of mass destruction hidden in the deserts of Iraq, and the fact that you couldn't find them, prove that they existed, was a conspiracy theory. Sorry, was mm-hmm. a, conspiracy. a conspiracy. That was yeah. a conspiracy because we now know the facts behind that. There are conspiracy theories which no one has yet managed to prove, and. What, I'm, what I try and trace in these films is that in the age of individualism, as those in charge, as those in power gave up on telling us, giving us a big picture of the world and said, no, you as individuals, 
go and have a nice time by yourselves in a, in a world of consumerism and your mm -hmm. own dreams and your own stories. That worked very well for a while. But really, from about 2008 on, when it crashed, the downside of individualism is that when things go bad, you are on your own. And it's quite frightening. Yeah. It's like mm -hmm. going out into the woods on your own at night is frightening. Whereas mm -hmm. when you go into the woods with your friends at night, it's really good fun. You're on your own in the woods after 2008. And in the face of that, what you then find on the internet is a strange mixture of evidence of real conspiracies, like, as you say, MK Ultra, that back mm -hmm. in the 1950s, the American government secretly did try and mind control human beings. It's not a science fiction thing. They did. But that mm -hmm. then gets mixed up with other theories that the Illuminati are really the secret rulers of the world, yeah. which is a conspiracy theory. But because in that frightened dark wood post-2008, yeah. individuals had no set measurement, had no sense of proportion, because those in power had effectively given up trying to explain the world to the people because to be to be brutal they didn't know what was going on and the journalists didn't know what was going on they hadn't they hadn't and i think still probably don't know what's going on and in the face of that people just started to assemble those fragments together so as i show in the films you get these extraordinary dream worlds emerging which which were believed by millions and millions of people that that most of the major stars from beyonce um, through to Britney Spears had all been brainwashed or mind controlled mm -hmm. by an alliance between the CIA using MKUltra techniques, the Illuminati and Walt Disney. And mm -hmm. millions of people believed that. Although as I then began to research that, I went to, to interview people who, who did believe it. I began to realize that actually underneath, they didn't completely believe it. What they liked was the fact that they lived in a world where no one told them any stories. Nothing made sense at all. So in the face of that, why not believe something extraordinary like that? Why not? Um, and I think Some people have suggested that uh, things like conspiracy theories, and in particular QAnon, QAnon, like the shit that I'm hearing in QAnon, that's nothing new to me because I, I've always had an interest in conspiracy theories. Going back to like Alex Jones or the stuff that David Icke speaks about, I've always been aware of that, but I considered it to be fringe. And in the past two years, it's now really mainstream. And now people I know have got their aunts and uncles thinking that the world is run by interdimensional shapeshifting lizards. And it's becoming a real issue. But one thing someone has proposed, which I think is interesting, people who are engaged in QAnon in, on, in an online basis, what they're actually doing is they're playing a fantasy game like Dungeons and Dragons, except yeah. they don't know they're doing it. Well, I think it's some hidden. do. I think some do and some don't. Is the truth? Well, there are deliberate trolls. There are de especially, like I know, there on, on websites like 4chan and Reddit, a lot of QAnon stuff started off with younger kids trying to see what shit yeah. they could make boomers yes. believe. Yes, exactly. When it got onto Facebook. Yes, and also. You know, the, the one thing you can really upset um, good thinking liberals with is conspiracy theories. They get really upset by them. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's a way of provoking. But you're right. A lot of people believe it. And I do think it was that 
I mean, look, conspiracy theories have always been around, as I show in the films. Mm -hmm. There was a conspiracy theory about the Illuminati in the early 1810s in America. Yeah. um, That that a a group from Bavaria had actually infiltrated the American government and were controlling it then. In the the late In Ireland, man, in in the 1800s in Ireland, there was a group of British people who believed that the British were descended from the 12 tribes of Israel and they used to try and dig up Irish Celtic sites and then writers like WB Yeats, Irish people, used to fight them off with axes because there was this British tribe that believed themselves to be descended from the 12 tribes of Israel and they were full-on conspiracy theorists. Yes. So, I I mean, it's, it's not new. It's not new. Conspiracy theories emerge, especially at times when those in power seem to have run out of a way of explaining the world. And I would argue that a lot of my profession, journalism, ran out of... No, people began to realise that journalists didn't really know what was going on from about 2001 onwards. Um, I mean, that's what I was dealing with in The Power of Nightmares, is is a suspicion in the back of a lot of people's minds, is the journalists didn't really know what was going on. And and the same was true that they didn't think the politicians really knew what was going on. And that, and that those groups whose job traditionally... But was there ever to- a time really where they did, though, Adam? Like, I mean, there when, I think, times when so they- I'm thinking of grand narratives, like, all right, East Cold War, capitalism versus communism, that's a nice, tidy little narrative. I mean, when does this... I think it's fair to say in the West we don't believe in religion anymore. I, th- I think that's a fair thing to say. Yeah. When you compare it to other times in the, we- in the West, we no longer... Like, that's... When I think of uh, China and what China have done with the social credit system, they, what they've literally done is invented God. Like, everything I was told God was, which was omnipotent, omniscient... The chi- in China, they've basically invented yes. that through the social credit system. Actually, that's, now a they very, have it. that's a very good observation because I've always thought that... that, that or Santa Claus. That, that, that same thing is waiting to be done here. Do you remember the... I think it's slightly dying away now. Yeah, I think so too. But, but the fetishization of artificial intelligence, which happened over yeah. the last four or five years, lots and lots of journalists going on about how this, this was going to be the future. They were going to control everything because mm-hmm. the computers and the data know more about you than you do about yourself. Mm-hmm. And you suddenly think, hang on, they're talking about religion. They're talking about God. Mm-hmm. Because isn't, yeah. isn't God supposed to know you better than you know yourself? Everything. When I was a kid, man, like, because yeah. I grew up Catholic, so I was told that God was real up until I was about 10 years of age, and I did believe it until my until I started to think for myself. And I used to be afraid to be alone with my own thoughts because I knew God was listening. Yeah. And then I got to an adult age, and I went, brilliant, I have my own thoughts now, and nobody's watching. But now, with your phone, I don't, I'm scared of talking around my phone sometimes. Because what I think is that, like in China, where they have the social credit system, and if people aren't familiar with this, basically, your data is shared with the government, and depending upon your behavior, you are rewarded or punished by society. So if you, if you go to the off-license too many times in one week, and you're seen as someone who drinks too much... Then next week when you need your washing machine fixed, you're going to be put on the end of the queue. You're being punished for bad behavior. The difference is our phones are still sharing the same amount of data in the West. The government hasn't flicked the switch to control us with it yet. The one I liked about the social credit system is that that they gather data from everywhere. So if the data shows that you are cheating at computer games, like looking Mm -hmm. up cheats, 
that actually may push you down the social credit system. Mm-hmm. I mean, at the end of the films, I, I try and uh, try and put forward. I mean, I can't. I mean, I don't know. I'm just a journalist. I'm trying to explain. But I try and put forward what are the three roads going into the future that I see possible. And one of them is that China model, which mm-hmm. is is that in an age where politics has run out of big ideas, ideology, and just wants to hold the world stable and try and manage it, increasingly they may turn to that that data-driven uh, system in which you just treat people as components in the system. You don't bother with what they think or feel any longer because that's just too complicated. And you just reward them with treats. And if they not rewarded, you do what the Chinese are doing with the Uyghur population, the Muslim population in Xinjiang. You, uh, in inverted commas, re- re-educate them or reprogram them. Um, mm-hmm. That's one option. I don't think that will happen in the West because individualism here is so deeply ingrained. It's deeply ingrained, but one thing that does makes me fearful is, like we say, the Patriot Act in, in America, which you mentioned in the film too. Because of 9-11... And 9-11 made Americans in particular so terrified and so hurt. I remember, like, I remember when 9-11 happened and I remember being shocked at the average American person in the news truly struggling to understand why anybody would want to attack America. They couldn't understand it. They were like, why us? We help everybody. Why would you want to attack us? Completely unaware of American behavior in the Middle East. And the Patriot Act, which basically allowed it it stripped away freedoms that people had around their data and around their privacy so i i sometimes think all it takes is an activating event here that's frightening enough and then we suddenly agree to the sharing of our data Uh, to be precise what happened after 9-11 is that the patriot act it didn't take away lures what it did is it got rid of what might possibly be being prepared as laws by the Federal um, Commission. Tra- Commission. Okay, yeah. Um, and, but you're right. The shock of it got rid of the growing worries about that. And it did, and it was part of that shift away from the idea that the individual should be private to being open because otherwise you might put yourself at risk. You, the data yeah. was important to stop any future attacks. But remember, after that, um, within about four or five years, there was a big reaction against some of the anti-terror legislation that mm-hmm. both here and in America was being brought in. I think we're more resilient to that. I do th- I do think that. I think the opposite. I think that what's emerged in this country, sorry, in, in the West, especially with the social media corporations, is that you, you manage your society not by shutting them down and just car- collecting data on them. You manage your society by creating a complete continual sense of hysteria I mean, if you yeah. look, if you look at the last, you see what what I point out in the films, or try and point out in the films, is that by, by about 2015, 2016, what the social media companies have realised is that what they call high arousal emotions, activating yes. emotions in their other phrase, are absolutely key to profits because it means you remain engaged online mm-hmm. longer. And that means you click more, and that means more profits. So what you get are these things called viral content factories, which constantly send around memes, which are there to outrage you. Uh, I mean, they, they, they amuse you as well, but they found that outrage and sort of anger are the most high arousal emotions. And then into this mix comes the most high arousal figure of all, 
Donald Trump and Brexit, mm-hmm. which creates this infernal system. I mean, you, in the last four years, every day I just had this picture that Donald Trump wakes up, thinks of what really awful thing he can tweet about, tweets it, and immediately millions of people outside, locked into a feedback system with him, get angry as well. And you've mm-hmm. got this feedback system of high arousal emotions, which just keeps everyone trapped. It's almost like they're trapped in a, a pantomime inside a theatre. While outside in the real world, actually nothing much changed. Mm-hmm. And and the old structures of power carried on moving money around in the way they wanted, and nothing got done. So what I'm saying is that there are two ways of running the world in, in, in this sort of fragmented mass democracy. Either you do what the Chinese do, which is ignore what people feel and just treat them as components in a almost a, 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 a system. And, mm-hmm. Or you go, no, let's go the other way. Let's create a sort of a, a hysterical society in which everyone is sort of frozen into a, a hysteria which repeats itself again and again. And people like Donald Trump and his opponents become almost codependents in that system. And therefore, nothing changes either. I'm not saying this is a conspiracy at all. It's just one of those things that the society stumbled upon in the absence of any other ideas. It just happened. And it happened because those who were in power at every level had run out of any other ideas of how to run society. You know, the the, Mm -hmm. the liberals didn't have any other alternative to to get the people who voted for Donald Trump back. The newspapers were running out, were going bankrupt, and they found that Donald Trump brought them more clicks. Donald Trump could have QAnon, which allowed him to explain why he wasn't doing anything. The the intelligence services could um, stop being villains any longer because they told us about weapons of mass destruction that didn't exist and instead become heroic truth tellers leaking secrets about the conspiracies behind Donald Trump and and Mm -hmm. Putin. Everyone won from this hysteria, but nothing actually changed. And, and it is this strange thing we've lived through over the last four years that I try and chart at the end of the series is that it was hysterical. It felt completely dynamic, but actually in real terms, it was almost totally static. Mm-hmm. I mean, into that, of course, came Black Lives Matter, which I think mm-hmm. it's yet again the next thing knocking at the door saying, no, there are really big structural problems in the society. We want mm-hmm. change. And that and and you you can't you can't hold that hysteria there forever there are always things knocking at the door and black lives matter was the next one um regarding what you were saying there about data i mean the high arousal emotions and how this continually keeps us online and the the, who benefits from that are google facebook these huge corporations that benefit from our data like i reckon twitter hated having to boot donald trump i think donald trump saved twitter like, Twitter is a quieter place now without Donald Trump. There is Donald, less outrage. Donald Trump saved a lot of people. He saved the New York Times. He saved a lot mm-hmm. of major newspapers that possibly would have gone bankrupt without him. I mean, you know, really. He, he, yeah. He, he saved a lot of things. Um, and I think they're very sorry to see him go underneath. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully, that hysteria will die down. Um, but it, I think we will look back at those four years as a very strange moment. I mean, the same is true here. I hope so. There I was, hope so, because four to years say that assumes a bit of normality. Yes. Well, I don't think you're going to go back. You can't. There was that slogan that people said Joe Biden had. I don't think he had it, which was, let's make America normal again. But but yeah. I, I don't think you're going to be able to go back to that. 
because I'm waiting for the next crazy shit to happen. That's what I'm. I'm <laughs> waiting for who is the next enemy and what absolutely batshit mad things do but, we have to but, deal with now? But, but you see that that what you've just said is what I'm trying to point out in these films is in a way the ideology of our age. There is a sort of feeling of inevitability about everything. Mm-hmm. Instead of being instead of being thinking no there are these things that are wrong about the world like climate change like inequality and actually we as human beings can try and do something about this what we have come to this feeling about is that somehow everything is inevitable it just happens to us and i do think that's partly one of the functions of conspiracy theories we spend our time with conspiracy theories imagining what they are doing to us rather than spending our time imagining how we could change the world for the better. So in a way, conspiracy theories have become a way of just blocking change amongst the very groups of people who want change because you're always suspicious of everything. And do you think individualistic attitudes is what leads to that, that we're consistently selfishly navel-gazing and this prevents us from looking outwards and looking at no, systemic I think change? I'm, I'm, more sim- I'm, I'm more sympathetic. I think that the, 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 that age of individualism, which was glorious and wonderful and allowed us to be free of being controlled by old elites in a way that has never happened before in history, was wonderful. But it's now decaying. And, it's, and people, instead of being empowered and confident on their own, are feeling uncertain, anxious, and alone. And in the face of that, they are turning to things like conspiracy theories, to all sorts of fears, because no one is explaining the world to them. And I think... And within this as well, Adam, you, you, you lay out the, the rise of the, the opioid crisis in yeah. America. Yeah. Well, you know, the opi- that is a response to factories closing across America. I mean, I remember mm-hmm. going through, spending two weeks in West Virginia in uh, just before Trump was elected, 2015. It was astonishing. The factories had closed. It, I mean, I remember going to a town in West Virginia and the woman who ran the uh, the motel I was staying at was just saying, this is, this is a zombie town now. And she was right. Mm-hmm. It was like a zombie town. And I don't mean that in any nasty patronizing way. People really were wandering out in a really blank, sort of frightened way. And as I try and chart in the films, is that that is a response to those fears and uncertainties. People retreated into opioids, which is a form of synthetic heroin, and heroin creates a safe bubble. It makes you feel safe in that bubble. That's that's how it works. Mm-hmm. That's its effect. And that's what people did. They retreated. And, and, and I think what I'm charting in these films is that retreat, not just amongst the people who hurt, but amongst those who were in charge as well. They retreated. And we are now left in a society which doesn't really make sense for people. That's the problem. And the old tradi- and there are two arguments here. One is, which I may be being nostalgic about, is that the old idea of what journalists did, what politicians did, what people like you and I did, was actually try and make stories that help people make sense of the world. Mm-hmm. Or we are undergoing a massive shift possibly because of the rise of the internet in which we've given up on stories and we just experience stuff and that maybe in 200 years time we will be looking at people who are totally unlike us totally uninterested in stories who have learned to live almost like in a day-to-day just experience just just sensation that 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 this that stories were just a moment in history 
or we are in the eye of the storm between one great big historical moment which told grand stories, which all began to fail about 50 years ago. And now, 50 years later, we are in this quiet moment, in the eye of the storm, with just fragments and fragments of trillions and trillions of stuff on the internet and all around us in the real world as well, none of which makes sense, which makes us feel anxious and uncertain. And we're waiting for the next story to come along. Someone, somewhere out there, will take all those fragments and reassemble them into a new big story. I have no idea where it's going to come from. I don't think it's going to come out of art. And that... But but we're in this funny little moment of, of history where actually... A Christ. Li- a Christ, basically. No, we're living in a world without meaning. That's where we got to at the moment. Yeah. And we're waiting for something or someone to come along with meaning. That's the other alternative. I don't know which it's going to be, but I do think we are in this strange little moment. Yes, I do wonder... Like, when I get... So when I get so utterly confused by reality and I can't make sense of it... One thing I say to myself is, Jesus Christ, I, I would love, I w- wouldn't it be so beautiful to have the certainty of religion? Wouldn't it be so great if either what Islam says or what Catholicism says or whatever, wouldn't it be lovely if that's what I actually believed? How simple would my life be if I could just obey 10 rules and obey them and then this gives me an eternity of happiness? Yes. But, and, 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 more, and more than that, what religion also gives you is it gives you consolation in the face of the inevitability of your own death. You're not alone. You are part mm-hmm. of something that's going to go on beyond you. All that has disappeared at the moment. And yes, I don't think religion will come back, but I think something else will come back that offers you something like that. Uh, I, but it won't, I can't... We, we mustn't try and go backwards. I mean, there are so many people who want to go back to an old kind of yeah. nationalism which is what uh, the people around Trump, the early people around Trump wanted wanted to do, mm-hmm. and sort of Brexit. You don't want that. And you don't, and you certainly don't want the ethno-nationalist right for, in Europe. Mm-hmm. You just don't want to go back. What, what I try and say at the end of the films is that surely it's time to start trying to imagine something that has never existed before. Um, and, and I quote this, this um, guy called David Graeber, who was an activist. Mm-hmm. Um, he was part of the Occupy movement. He was an anthropologist as well. And he wrote this thing that I've always thought was absolutely wonderful and sort of sums up what I believe. It's, he said, the ultimate hidden truth of the world it is, is that it is something we made and could just as easily make different. And I've always liked that because mm-hmm. it, what it contains within it is that truth that we did this, However frightened and anxious and feeling of inevitability we have, we made this all together, this world, which means that Mm -hmm. actually we can make it differently. We just need to regain the confidence. And that's all I'm trying to say in the films. I'm trying to trace why our confidence collapsed, all the different reasons for that, so that we can stop going back to an old ethno-nationalism or to an old kind of rigid religion, that actually genuinely we might be able to imagine something new. I find that idea quite thrilling, mm-hmm. but that's not the thing you say in our age of anxiety. It, but I do think it's got to the point where some, that's going to happen inevitably, and it would be better try, to try and own the future than just let it happen to you. That's what I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, so you started off making things on television, but now your last three pieces have been on the BBC player, which means that you can effectively have them. Like Bitter Lake was three hours long. Do you prefer 
to have the freedom of the player where you can kind of make something as long as you want it or do you miss the constraints of television where something has to be 60 minutes or 30 minutes? I, what I found making stuff online was, yes, you can make something longer, which means you can make it more involving. But what I also discovered was, or I knew it in myself, is that when people watch stuff online, they bring a different kind of sensibility to it. It's it's more relaxed is the wrong word. It's more open. Um, people are they, choosing it too. People are making a choice yes, to watch you online. And, it's and, and they know they can stop and start. They can bookmark yeah. it. It's it's more like making a book. And in that, and because you've got that new sensibility, you can make things more complicated and involving. And you don't. Yes. They somehow. I can't explain this. I don't know if you've noticed this online. People can be really vicious online, but they can also be very yeah. permissive online. I, I yeah. found when I used to write a blog, if you got something wrong, they'd point it out. And, you, and if you were completely straight about it, you said, yes, you're completely right. I got that wrong. I'll change it. Everyone went, oh, fine. It, 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 it's more well, you're open. breaking the rules there. People expect you to fight with them. And yeah, when but, you come out with honesty, you break the rules. Yes, it reminds and, and, people and that the internet allows that. Human. It was really good like that. And I somehow felt what I learned from that was that if you could make great big programs that were somehow more involving, more open. And I think the audience liked that. And I think a lot of the people who still make films, television programs haven't quite cottoned on to the fact that the audience are much more open to mm -hmm. things that are complicated and involving. And sometimes have bits in the... the just they're just there like real life you know I just, in the films I've just but made the process as well Adam like when you sent me on those seven films it took me more than a month to watch them and the reason is <laughs> when I watch your stuff like I could be 10 minutes into it and then you say something and then I have to pause it and I have to go to Wikipedia yeah. because you've given me a train of thought and it's like I gotta learn more about this shit before I go back yeah so the way that I'm consuming it is now completely different yes but that's exactly what I've I mean, I also realized that in a way you could also cut a lot out. It, it, mm -hmm. it, the old way of making television programs is you have to somehow assume you're explaining everything to everyone. Mm -hmm. So actually, even if I know that 80% of my audience know already something, I have to put it in because there's the 20% who don't. In, yeah. With these films, you can just sort of put, you, you don't have to put everything in because you know they can stop and start and go and find things out mm -hmm. or go off on their own tangent and then come back to it. Mm -hmm. And I really like that. So when I did Bitter Lake, I would I would literally put in things th that I knew they could go and find out more about if they mm -hmm. wanted to or if they didn't. So it becomes a much looser relationship and a much more respectful relationship with the audience because you just assume that, that they're going to use what they want to do rather than just being my prisoner for, for an um, hour. What documentary makers do you enjoy? Who inspires you? Who has inspired you? To be honest, I don't really watch much documentaries. I tend to read fiction. Okay. Um, the, 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 the people who have inspired me are write, writers. I mean, the person, who, the person who inspired me most, who I got everything off, is an American novelist that everyone's forgotten about now who wrote in the 1920s and 30s. He's called John Los Passos, and he wrote this gigantic novel called USA, which is an epic about the big the sort of rise to power of America in the early part of the 20th century. But he did it in a way where he intercut between narratives of fictional characters, narratives of real people, and this strange thing which he called the camera eye, which was just raw experience that made no sense, just fragments and images and things. And wow. ever since I read that, I thought, well, I can do that in film. Why not? And I, it's, and, it, Well, it and sounds I, like a synopsis of, of what you do with documentaries. What he's doing is in a way what I'm trying to do, which is 
Don't get rid of all the raw experience, but try and pull it together to make people look and feel, look at mm -hmm. it again differently, make it feel differently, but don't get rid of the raw experience. I mean, I, I don't know if you noticed, but every now and then in the films, I will just put in some stuff. Like there's, there's a guy- With some music. Yeah, but, and then but, I ha that's my space to feel something. Yes, and just sort of feel that actually the other part of life is just stuff happens and it's then assembled later into, mm -hmm. into meaningful stories. But uh, sometimes there are just fragments. And and you know that yourself in life. Suddenly you've just had an experience, it's gone, and it, it doesn't make any sense and it never probably will. It just happened. And, and I think that's as much part of the realism of our time as the joined up stories. Perfect. Thanks a million, Adam. That was absolutely fantastic. And thanks for your time. Thank um, you. I hope everyone gets a squint at the new documentary. But uh, have a smashing evening. Have a lovely evening, all right? You and too. Very nice to talk to you, Brian, bud. Yart. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, check out Adam's new documentary. All right, February 11th. Can't get you out of my head on the BBC iPlayer. Um, I'm aware that... You know, you can only get the iPlayer if you live within the realm of the English Queen. But if you're smart, if you're smart, VPNs, things like that, you can find a way around it and you can watch it in Ireland. All right. I didn't say that. I heard you can do that. I heard that's a thing you can do. I'd never do that. Um. All right. I'll catch you next week. I'll catch you next week. I'll have a hot take about what? I don't know. I don't know, but I'm going to have a roaster of a take next week, I guarantee. God bless. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.